Glad tidings to you one and all, it's Chappie, the British butler. Keep calm and cauliflower cheese, it's episode number 41. So I have to say, um, Thanksgiving was last week, and I, um, I have loosened my belt. I've undone the top button. I do still have suspenders on, or, or um, as he said in the UK, braces. This could be slightly confusing to... Uh, our uh, American and British listeners and probably listeners all around the world. Um, suspenders in the UK are like stockings and suspenders that a, a lady may wear or um, somebody who likes to wear stockings may want to wear. Um, gentlemen wear them too. Um, but uh, the suspenders hold up the stockings. Um, but in the U.S., uh, something that your grandfather would wear. Now, a grandfather could sometimes maybe wear the British version of stockings and suspenders, too. I'm, I'm really digging myself a rather wintry, slightly holiday-shaped hole here. Um, but welcome along to the podcast. I, I do have the braces on, or the suspenders in America, that are holding up the trouser. So uh, don't worry about that. Um, your, your butler will be safe. There'll be no uh, flashing of um, uh, the, uh, the long johns or the uh, thermal underwear today, I promise you. Um, welcome along to the podcast. Now, we're going to try to get two podcasts in a week between now and Christmas and the new year. So there will be another one tomorrow. Um, I hope you don't get indigestion. If you do, there is a podcast version of Tums you can take. That will help uh, anything that uh, anything that uh, upsets the tummy, such as a, a rather rich, indulgent uh, English podcast like Keep Calm and Cauliflower Cheese. Um, anyway, some of the things that we may or may not be talking about uh, today, along the way, on uh, on the aforementioned highly esteemed uh, podcast, is: Have you ever heard of or had an itchy nipple? Um, are you going to be saving a ginger this Christmas? Um, also, um, something else that we, we, we may be delving into during the course of the uh, program today is um, why does Twitter keep showing me utility tools? It's, it's showing me all sorts of utility tools. Um, I'm not the handiest of people. Um, I'm not a handy chap. Uh, but uh, it keeps showing me utility tools, which is which is quite interesting. Um, it's very cold in the UK. It's a, it's a frigid evening in the UK, and uh, we're going to be looking back at uh, some of the frost fairs that uh, that occurred uh, during the uh, uh, during the 1800s. And why did they happen? Um, it's it's quite a sort of Christmassy, warm feel to I know a very cold frost fair. Uh, but all the, the Dickens novels were based around this sort of mini ice age and this frost fair. Uh, so we're going to be uh, taking, uh, taking a look at that as well. Uh, over the course of the um, next uh, few weeks, we will be uh, looking at some of the more eccentric English dishes around Christmas time, such as the mince pie and the Christmas pudding, um, the strange and twisted history of the mince pie, um, People are still up in arms about the loss of the cricket tees. No more cricket tees, apparently. Not just because of COVID, but it's a lot of bloody hard work as well to, to get the tees going. Uh, the fall of Anne Boleyn, a right royal stitch-up forensically revealed. It sounds like something that could be on the crown. Um, have you bought your BA World Cl uh, Club World slippers yet? 
Uh, I know we featured that story last week where you can buy, uh, hopefully they're not used slippers. Do you think they're used slippers? Because BA auctioning off a lot of their champagne flutes and uh, uh, flight attendant neckerchiefs, but I, I don't know if I'd want to buy a used slipper. Um, the Tiger King Joe Exotic is on the prowl for a pardon from Donald Trump. Uh, Call Blimey, that's an apple I've never seen before. Uh, Stilton makers, uh, the cheese makers, get the blues as Christmas plans crumble under COVID. Dogged out for six years, how Bonnie made it back. The great Scotch egg debate. Don't know if you read this in the in the uh, in the uh, English news over the week. Um, Michael Gove got into a lot of trouble. Bit of egg on his face, I believe. Um, also, there is a pint-sized Nessie living in Wales. The Loch Ness monster living in that. In Wales, we're going to have some Trump or trombone. Uh, we're going to have a historical Tinder game. Uh, we're going to have another enigmatic English eccentric as well. Some of our regular features. But you're very welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining me today. And we're going to have one fun rump and ride today. So I thought it'd be rather lovely to look at some of the uh, frost fairs that happened in London. It's a very, very cold, frigid night in London today. And um, many, many years ago, probably 150, 200 years ago, you had the frost fairs. Winter wonderland on the Thames. Until 1814, the surface of the river froze over 24 times. Londoners uh, marked some of these occasions with frost fairs, building markets, playing games, and cooking meat on the icy surface of the river. Let's look at some of the those famous frost fairs uh, through some of the London collections that have recently come out. Why did the Thames freeze? The Thames was not the river we know today. It was much wider and shallower and had not yet contained within the stone embankments. Its depth and the fact that it flowed much more slowly meant it was easier for the water to freeze. There was another important factor separating the river from the modern Thames, uh, which you can see in the background of many contemporary images of frost fairs. This was London Bridge, built on 19 arches supported by small piers with projecting starlings, which broke up the flow of the river. In winter, when these arches were blocked with ice and debris, London Bridge almost acted like a dam, slowing the Thames and uh, helping it to freeze. Cold winters were also much more common in London during this period. From 1300 until 1870, the Earth experienced very low temperatures due to a natural occurrence named the Little Ice Age. This was mainly due to the period of geological climate change combined with volcanic eruptions uh, and with very low support activity. The uh, Little Ice Age phenomenon called many consequences that affected everyday life for Londoners. The worst were the freezes, like of 1683 to 84. Lakes, rivers and part of the sea along the southern coast of England all froze. The fact was uh, so exceptional that it was reported in the London Gazette in, eight, in 1684 in particular because it brought a halt to all the commerce on the water, especially on the River Thames. With the Thames at a standstill, hundreds of bargemen and sailors were frozen out of work. Frost fairs offered a chance 
um, for them to regain some work and to earn money um, by uh, guiding sightseers under the ice. Others fitted their small boats with uh, with runners, uh, turning them into sledges and offering along the fr frozen river. In 1608, the Thames froze for six weeks, and we had the first documented frost fair. It was reported to be an extremely rare pamphlet printed for the occasion, um, and the, it was called The Great Frost. Cold doings in London accept it to be at the lottery with the news out of the country, a familiar talk between a countryman and a citizen touching this terrible frost and the great lottery and effects of them. The pamphlet was written as a conversation between a man from the countryside and another from London, mainly as they discussed how they were coping with the cold. In particular, London's details, uh, unusual experience of being shaved in the middle of frozen Thames, an experience that will be remembered in the afterlife, he said. So the trade is set up and sold many items. Visitors, visitors could buy souvenirs uh, of this extraordinary visit to the Frost Fair. Printers would print and sell tickets. Uh, there's an amazing item from the 1883-84 Frost Fair, now in the Museum of London's collection, a ticket printed on the ice for Charles II, King Charles II, and his court when they visited the fair on uh, the 31st of January 1684. Imagine the king folded this ticket and put it in his pocket, and it's still uh, in the museum uh, within the 21st century. During the same frost fair, you could have bought a silver spoon dated and engraved to remember your visit, another treasure in the London Museum's uh, collection. Um, but, I mean, this was a, a, a marvellous event. Um, as I said, and it was over the course of about 300 years. They, uh, they had, um, you know, they had the frost fairs. Um, and they had this this mini ice age going on. That's why many of uh, that's why many of Dickens' uh, uh, written pieces at the time and novels, including uh, Christmas Carol and Great Expectations, were set around a, a frozen, frigid London. And um, and uh, it, you know this hasn't really been seen since. I only ever saw one White Christmas, and. Uh, but 150, 200 years ago, it was very, very, very common. And that's what you see at uh, any uh, film adaptations of A Christmas Carol. Uh, and obviously the written adaptations as well. But on a cold night in London, it's lovely to read about the frost fairs. You just need a warm of uh, warm cup of hot chocolate and, uh, and possibly uh, maybe an Irish coffee or something along those lines. Something definitely to warm the cockles. So, I don't know if you've ever had this issue, but uh, in the week, I had a rather itchy nipple. Um, now, I've heard of the drink Slippery Nipple before, and that, that does uh, slip down the gullet uh, something rather wonderful, let me tell you. But I, I was just sort of wondering what an itchy nipple means, particularly. I don't think it means I'm going to come into any money or maybe become a lap dancer or something, potentially. Um, but it made me think about um, bodily superstitions. Um, so, you know, we have old wives' tales, and there's a compilation of superstitions and old wives' tales about body parts. And, uh, and these superstitions come from various sources, from hair to feet. I wanted to find what an itchy nipple meant, if there was anything, if there's anything I need to worry about. 
But there's common superstitions about hair, eyes, nose, lips, itching on the body, the hands, fingers, uh, palms and feet, twitching on the body, moles and dimples, sneezing, hiccups, coughing, body jewellery, uh, gloves and buttons, underwear, handkerchiefs, hats, shoes and new clothes. So the superstitions about anyway, anything here. So we've got a sudden loss of hair. That means an unlucky forecasting of a decline of health, loss of property or failure in business or the death of a closely related child. That's cheerful and we'll be talking later about red hair uh, possibly associated with fiery tempered people like Cleopatra and Queen Elizabeth I never knew Cleopatra was a redhead this is this is news to me this almost deserves a drum roll and a fanfare black and dark brown hair indicates strength fair hair uh, implies timidity hair that grows low on the forehead and back of the temples he will have a long life I wonder what a hairy back means doesn't mean you're turning into a Neanderthal or something. Uh, if a woman suddenly develops curls on her forehead, her man does not have long to live. You better look out for that, chaps. Lank hair, a cunning nature. Curly hair, good-natured, full of fun. That's why I've got a curly locks, you see. Little Lord Fonderoy. Good-natured and full of fun. Long hair equals strength, like Samson, and, and obviously luck as well. Um, and it was said to be unlucky when you have your hair cut, when the moon is waning, as this will cause it to all fall out and you'll lose your beauty. Um, so the eyes, dark blue eyes, delicate and refined souls, light blue eyes or grey eyes, strong and healthy ones, green eyes, hardy souls, hazel eyes, vigorous, deep-thinking folk, itchy eyes, if the right eye tickles, it's lucky, and vice versa. So uh, with the ears, small ears donated delicate character and thick ears a person of sensual coarse nature thin angular ears means a bad temper and long and prominent ears a person with musical inclinations or possibly an elf um the nose prominent noses intelligence determination i always said a big honker denotes wisdom a large nose means you've got a large degree of wisdom and possibly large feet as well. A tickling nose uh, in, a, in, a, in, in Britain is a fight or an important communication. A tickling nose in America is it, it means you're about to get a kiss. Hmm. Large teeth means you have physical strength. Um, okay, so here's the itching part. Here we go, ladies and mantelpieces. Itchy eyes, a sign of good luck. Uh, lips, somebody's about to kiss you. Right palm, you'll receive money. If you have an itchy left palm, you'll lose money. Foot, you'll go on a journey somewhere new. Ears, someone is talking about you. Nose, you'll get in a fight with somebody soon. And if you have an itchy breast, someone you used to love wants to come back into your life. Well, I don't know. I think it's only the hounds that really adore me these days. Um, but... Uh, there we go. There's there's what all of these body superstitions mean. So take your poison, examine it, and I would uh, say probably take it with a pinch of salt. So we do have a real affinity on this program, Keep Calm on Cauliflower Cheese, to Anne Boleyn, Henry VIII, all thing Tudor. But there was a rather lovely uh, piece and uh, um, program on the fall of Anne Boleyn, Anne Boleyn was executed in May 1536, yet in one way she never died. Her enigma exerts fascination to this day. During her final hours in the Tower of London cell, she would perhaps take some small crumb of comfort that in 484 years, her last days would be depicted on something called Channel 5 and this concept called television. 
Um, but uh, it, The Fall of Anne Boleyn, which is a recent TV show that's come out in the UK, and I'm sure it's coming out in the US fairly soon, is told in a countdown to the chopping block. Uh, format over three nights looks set to show what a royal stitch up of justice her arrest trial and execution were what we do know uh, and let's get down to business is uh, Berlin was actually a six-fingered sorceress was she a sex maniac did she sleep with her brother well not even our walking and talking historian Tracy Borman in the show knows the truth and it's unlikely that this heavy-eyed, heavy-jawed queen proclivities were quite so rampant. But it became clear from Borman's forensic look at Berlin's final days, aside from an astonishing amount of slander from a monarch, is that every Tudor history documentary lately has included a parallel with our present government. While talking to the Guardian journalist Owen Thomas about Thomas Cromwell, um, and uh, the, who was the original, apparently the original Dom, Dominic Cummings, um, uh, Borman said, instead get Brexit done, it was get rid of the Queen of England. Uh, what kind of thing is getting a bit laboured, but Borman can't go wrong with the actual historical details. Forget Princess Diana, as we heard, Boleyn's arrest while watching tennis in Greenwich, and the ignominy of her river journey to the Tower of London, where proof that Boleyn is still Queen when it comes to raw speculation. Not even the bombastic Channel 5 history style with constant gathering strings and disembodied voiceovers uh, it seems like it's a comedy skit can stop Berlin take effect taking hold so I mean I think it's certainly something to to watch uh, I'm still rather scared of p potentially the um, apparition of Berlin coming back holding a head like she does around the grounds of Blickling Hall um, that we've uh, talked about on a on another podcast here but anyway very interesting so it's equating um, a historical event to Brexit. I mean, do we have to bring everything back to Brexit? We've got Anne Boleyn now, we had Megxit, uh, Prince Harry and Meghan. Everything come back to Brexit. So it may, maybe it'll all be over soon. Maybe it'll all be over soon by the shouting. Who knows? But anyway, that program will be coming out in the US very, very soon. And it looks absolutely fascinating. So this is the time of year that we often uh, give to the needy, whether it's the Salvation Army um, or Oxfam uh, or the Red Cross. Uh, we're you know, giving money and giving clothes and all sorts um, of things, charitable works uh, to these institutions over Christmas to help the needy. And there's a lot this year, obviously, with COVID. But I think, you know, something that we've forgotten, um, a very needy group, and there's websites about this, apparently, that I never knew of is there are websites about and really detailing how to save the ginger, the redhead. I think we need to start a campaign this Christmas to save the ginger. Um, I mean, the ginger hobnobs are one of my favorite biscuits, cookies. Don't get that right. We don't want to be confused again. But I think we have to go about saving redheads this year. I mean, I, my mind was wandering towards this because I was thinking about elves, gnomes, and then I moved on to uh, leprechauns, and I was thinking redhead. And we need to save these dastardly little leprechauns this Christmas, or any redhead this Christmas, any ginger. Because I do worry that if we don't save gingers this Christmas, they might be knocked off the end of the rainbow like a some sort of leprechaun lemming. So I think all of you lovely people know that I do have a paranoia about the whole social dilemma, that 
technology is watching everything I do. It's listening to this podcast. It, it may be one of the only listeners. I've got cyborgs and artificial intelligence listening to the podcast. I think that's maybe all, all the listeners that I have, potentially. But something else. So I, I think the social dilemma did go wrong this week. So I saw on my Twitter account, somebody was advertising a 24-in-1 key-shaped pocket tool. Now, anybody who knows me is I'm the most unhandy chap out there. I, I just have no clue um, what, you know, what happens when it comes to pulling a tool out of a toolbox. I mean, I don't even know what end to use, for God's sake. Um, but this, this is apparently a wrench. It can, I don't know, can take stones out of horses' hooves. There's even a pipe smoking section as well, which, which I you know, found find rather interesting. I'll get onto that in, in a second. But this thing is, is uh, I mean, it, it's, first of all, it can tighten nuts, bolts. It can pull out screws and nails. It has a little measuring section there as well. There's a, a little area where you can measure and then put a notch in a, hopefully not a bedpost. It has a little um, piece where you can screw in um, a screw. There's a, there's a, there's a, like a Phillips screwdriver head to it. Um, I mean, there's all sorts of wondrous things here. Um, it can even, uh, it can open up a bottle. I mean, the real bro present this, it can, uh, it can, uh, tighten up, uh, bicycle tires. I mean, this thing is amazing. I mean, it's got, the, so the, here's the, the key features of this. It's got a pipe so you can smoke out of it. Bike spoke key, screwdriver tip, Phillips screwdriver tip, a metric closed wrench, bit driver tip, serrated edge, can opener, wire stripper. I mean, it's absolutely uh, unbelievable. I mean, it's, it's, it's got everything, everything a, a chap would ever want, other than if the chap's me. So it did make me, it did make me think, though, that the social dilemma, my whole social, di di uh, my whole, whole social dilemma paranoia is actually going wrong. Um, I mean, the, the interesting pipe smoking section, I mean, where did these social dilemma trolls get that I could be a pipe smoker? Um, I mean, if I was to be a pipe smoker, though, I would do the Sherlock Holmesian pipe and a tweed deerstalker hat. Now that, here we go. This is the test. I'm putting it out there now. So a curly Sherlock Holmesian pipe and a deerstalker hat. Let's see. Over the next few weeks, on Instagram and on Twitter, if I get any adverts with the Curly Holmesian pipe and the Deerstalker tweed hat. If I do, it'll be the Twilight Zone. So the Tiger King Joe Exotic on the prowl for a pardon from Donald Trump. The zookeeper made famous for the television series Tiger King, who is serving 22 years in prison, could be pardoned by President Trump. Joe Exotic, Malnado Passage, 57, was convicted last year for killing five tigers, selling cubs, and trying to hire a human hitman um, to uh, murder an animal welfare activist. Uh, Mr. Trump is expected to issue a succession of pardons and commute sentences before he leaves office, something that most presidents do. Uh, but Joe Exotic um, uh, could be on the list. His case became widely known through the series on Netflix, which delved into his colourful life and that of Carol Baskin, the conservationist who was convicted of trying to kill um, uh, to be killed. Friends of Manado Passage Exotic have been campaigning for his release from prison in Texas. Um, they've appealed to the president's son, Joe Jr. and Jared Kushner, 
um, uh, his son-in-law, the New York Times, reported. Uh, Mr. Trump Jr. joked in April that he would ask his father to pardon Joe Exotic. I mean, Joe Exotic and Trump, I mean, if Trump grew his hair out a little bit and bleached it sort of blonde Baywatch style there wouldn't be much between them. He hasn't got that sort of bum fluff under his nose, though, um, which you could call a moustache, I suppose. It's no, it's no Mo Bro. It's no Mo. It's no Movember Bro. I have to say, um, but uh, but you know the two of them do have similar hairstyles, and um, they they may have sort of an affinity together. So maybe the pardon will come. Maybe the pardon will come. But I know there's another um, another piece coming out on I think Carol Baskin next year about this alleged um, murdering of her ex-husband. Um, but the whole thing is uh, is seemed very uh, Floridian and very uh, a lot of mulitude going on, let's say that. So Paris accent snobs banned from picking on the yokels. French people who don't and do not speak like educated Parisians would be protected from discrimination under a draft law. The bill tabled by MPs in President Macron's centrist political camp aims to curb the prejudice in the professional world against regional and lower class accents. Previous attempts to outlaw accent discrimination have failed. But the appointment of, in July of Jean Castex, who's from southwestern France, as a prime minister, should improve the chances of the bill. Unlike most people in high level public life, he's never raised his provincial twang. Uh, Christophe Uzer, MP for the Mediterranean port of Sete and lead sponsor of the bill, said he was outraged by the way Mr. Castex, a former senior civil servant and town mayor, had been mocked for his accent after Mr. Macron appointed him. Mr. Uzer, a native of uh, Perpignan, uh, shares Mr. Castex's sing-song speech, which is more northern France, um, associated with uh, sunshine pastices. Um, a typical southerner is seen as a fun guy, not there to talk about his serious things. Parisian rejection of non-standard speech was a factor in the provincial yellow vest revolt against the state elites two years ago. Half of French people acknowledged they do not speak with the standard tongue that uh, evolved from states' uh, efforts since, since the 16th century to eradicate regional accents and languages and impose the version spoken uh, in, the, in the Paris region of France. A quarter say that they suffer mockery and 16% they have been discrimination of accent discrimination! at work and in other activities, according to uh, IFOP survey this year. The speech that carries the biggest handicap is the uh, poor ethnic type of uh, speaking, this, uh, right, which is around the suburbs of the big cities and the dialect of northern Picardy, near the Belgian border. The bill, which will be voted on after uh, reading this week, adds discrimination over speech to gender, race and other sources of discrimination punishable by law. People still uh, will be able to make jokes about accents, Mr. Uze said. But the aim is not to punish, but to fill a legal vacuum and force a change of mentality. So there we go. No more snobby, no more snobbery around regional accents uh, in France. Um, but you know what? I think they should just sit down, have a nice uh, cup of uh, café and uh, a little pan au chocolat. So I don't know if anybody heard in the week about this huge debate in the week, because now lockdown in the UK is, is over again on the 2nd of December, and they have this tiered system. So um, I believe in a lot of places, only parties of six can get together. It's, a lot of it still has to be outside. A lot of the shops are still open as well in the pubs. 
but Michael Gove weighs into the Scotch egg substantial meal route. So a Scotch egg is basically, and again, I, I don't know if I've ever discussed this on the podcast, um, but it's basically either a hard-boiled egg or a slightly soft-boiled egg wrapped in sausage meat, then coated in breadcrumbs and then deep-fried. It's absolutely delicious, but normally seen as a starter. But Michael Gove, the uh, cabinet office minister, said two scotch eggs would be a starter. He reiterated his stance before backtracking to say that there is a substantial meal. Environmental Secretary George Eustace said yesterday that one is a substantial meal. Uh, people going into tier two must have su- su- substantial meals to allow them to buy pints. Landlords accuse governments of providing no clarity on the substantial meal rule. Um, the row deepened uh, with a, whether a Scotch egg can be classified as a substantial meal under rules that only allowing alcohol to be served with food from uh, earlier in the week on Wednesday. Uh, Cabinet Officer Minister Michael Gove told uh, LBC Radio two Scotch eggs would be a starter. Mr Gove reiterated his stance on LBC in a second interview on Good Morning Britain before backtracking and saying uh, a Scotch egg is a substantial meal. The confusion comes after the government said that people going into tier two from tomorrow will have to buy a substantial meal to allow them to buy a pint. So basically, you could have a scotch egg and 10 pints. That's basically what you do. I mean, back in the days of university, I probably would have done that. Or maybe even two scotch eggs. But why don't you just make it a double yoker? If you can get a double yoker, double yoker scotch egg, uh, you know, then there'll be no egg on the face. Two, a two yoker would be a substantial meal. Or maybe you could ask for three shredded wheats, you know, served at the pub, along with your ten pints of ale. But uh, but I think that would that would have saved Gove. If if there's any way that we can genetically engineer or eggs to be double yokers, then you could have one double o- double yoker Scotch egg. So welcome to another edition of Trumple Trombone, where we take some of the most awful headlines of the week and we equate them to either a Trump which in Britain is the infamous raspberry, or, or it could be a trombone, you know? So you've got the Trump. Is the Trump worse than the... Or the, is the raspberry worse? Is the Trump worse, or is the, uh, or is the sad wah-wah-wah trombone worse than the, uh, indeed, the raspberry? So that's what we have to equate uh, on... Uh, on on our little uh, trample trombone uh, game here. Um, so we have uh, first of the week, um, we have uh, a virtual girlfriend app points the way. So this was a, a little piece that I read in the week. Um, and I think um, this certainly deserves the trumpet or the trombone. Virtual girlfriend app points the way to sci-fi future of online clubs and festivals. Um, you basically got a, a new app that uh, allows artificial intelligence to blend augmented reality and virtual reality can create real people inside your phone or even send you back in time. Um, the Blade Runner-style virtual friends have become a reality long before the sci-fi movie predicted. Hybrid uses a, a combination of augmented reality uh, and virtual reality and artificial intelligence to put a convincing 3D companion in your home Ideal for those who feel a bit isolated during uh, lockdown. Uh, the unique project uh, is now live on Kickstarter and will soon be shipping. It promises the ability to create your perfect partner in interactive 3D without the need for additional 
uh, VR wands or gloves. Models can either be photorealistic using Hybris photo upload option to create a 3D model or based on an anime template. Oh dear, all of this is very scary. I wonder if the virtual last cyborg would virtually ask one to put the toilet seat down or virtually ask one to load the dishwasher up in the correct way or virtually ask me to virtually buy her a Christmas present before Christmas Eve. Do these, uh, do these do these cyborgs or fembots, do they need tungsten tampons from Walgreens, I wonder? Because that would be a total embarrassment going in and asking for a tungsten tampon. So there, you can go and get your virtual fembot or femboy for Christmas. So next, mum's stunned to find baby Yoda staring back at her in her sausage and mash. Jade Etherington burst into laughter after finding the Star Wars character staring at her while standing on her plate. Uh, just as she was about to tuck into a tasty grub, she uh, she noticed and burst out laughing after finding Baby Yoda appearing in front of her from her dinner of sausage mash and Yorkshire puddings. Jade Etherington was stunned to see uh, what looked like the Star Wars character staring back at her. The 29-year-old broke into pearls of laughter after noticing Baby Yoda standing on top of her plate as she was about to dig in. She noticed had ears made from Yorkshire puddings and sausage legs. After taking a quick snap of the doppelganger dinner, uh, factory worker Jade wolfed down the delicious uh, meal chef partner David Everington had made, despite admitting it was almost too cute to uh, even eat. Um, I mean, if the mash wasn't smooth and lumpy, would Baby Yoda say, mash me you will? Um, the dark side of mash surely would be uh, Darth Vader's favourite, which would be instant mash, uh, and the uh, Star Wars uh, equivalent to the Cornish game hand for Christmas would be indeed a stuffed Ewok. <coughs> Um, and then finally on uh, Trample Trombone, uh, we have a half-naked man seen humping trees and eating their branches, which was caught on camera by, uh, by the police. Uh, so the bizarre incident involved a home invasion as well as an extended session of semi-nude gardening went uh, b beyond wholesome tree-hugging and strayed into shrub molestation. A man arrested for humping trees and nibbling their branches may have been under the influence of some sort of drugs as the deputy police in Nagatucket, um, Connecticut. Police were called to, to reports of a half-dressed man in a garden who was humping trees, screaming and eating branches just before 3 p.m. on Thursday, November the 12th. When the officers arrived, the half-naked su suspect, who they thought was acting irrationally, disappeared into a nearby house. The terrified occupants of the house left almost immediately, according to the police report. Um, anyway, so... <laughs> I guess he was looking for a vegetation vegan feast whilst creaming his your log. In thousands of years, though, I wonder if they'll discover an amber-like resin on the trunk of the tree, and people think that our ancestors were filthy beasts. Um, but they would be able to have a human amber resin necklace with possibly a beetle inside. Hmm, uh, protein perfection. So over the next couple of weeks, we're going to be looking at fairly eccentric uh, English Christmas foods and dishes that you would not get probably anywhere in the world other than the UK. Um, but today we're going to be looking at the history of the Christmas pudding. In America, Christmas pudding, also known as plum pudding or figgy pudding, is a dish as famous as it's misunderstood. Its flaming centre, the climactic meal of Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol, pops up in you know, carols themselves. We wish you a Merry Christmas has two old verses about demanding a figgy pudding. 
But the uh, uninitiated Christmas pudding uh, eyed with scepticism befitting a dish that can be a- cannot be accurately described as a cross between a fruitcake and a haggis set on fire. Uh, Christmas pudding has its roots in medieval English sausages when fat, spices and fruits, the best preservatives of the day, were mixed with meats, grains and vegetables and packed into animal stomachs and intestines so they would keep as long as possible. The first records of plum puddings date back to the early 15th century when a plum potage, a savoury concoction of heavy on the meat and root vegetables was served at the start of the meal. This was now known uh, that plum in the plum pudding was a generic term for any dried fruit, mostly commonly raisins and currants and prunes and other dried preserves and candied fruit added when available. By the end of the 16th century, dried fruit was more plentiful in England and plum pudding made the shift from savoury to sweet. And then you had the development of the pudding cloth, a floured piece of fabric that could hold and preserve the pudding of any size, further freed the pudding from dependence on animal products, but not entirely. Suet, the fat around beef and mutton kidneys have always been a key ingredient. By the mid-1600s, plum pudding was sufficiently associated with Christmas that when Oliver Cromwell came to power in 1647, he had it banned, along with your logs, carol singing and nativity scenes. To Cromwell and his Puritan associates, such merrymaking smacked of uh, Druidism and paganism and Roman Catholic uh, idiocy. In 1660, the Puritans were deposed and the Christmas pudding, along with the English monarchy, were restored. Fifty years later, England's first German-born ruler, George I, was styled uh, the Pudding King after rumours surfaced of his request to serve plum pudding at his first English Christmas banquet. As with many English-derived Christmas traditions, the standard form for Christmas pudding solidified during the Victorian era when English journalists, political leaders and novelists, not not least Dickens himself, worked to uh, uh, move forward to a standardised, family-friendly English Christmas among England's poor. Christmas-saving clubs sprung up to help housewives lay away pennies throughout the year to purchase pudding ingredients. Come Christmas time, families throughout England began celebrating the the last Sunday before Advent in which the Book of Common Prayer liturgy, Liturgy includes a prayer that begins, Stir up, we beseech thee, O Lord, the wills of thy faithful people, stir up Sunday which family members take turns stirring up the Christmas pudding, which then was wrapped and boiled and set aside and to mature until Christmas Day. By the 19th century, the ingredients were more or less standardised to suet, brown sugar, raisins, currants, candied uh, orange peel, eggs, breadcrumbs, nutmeg, cloves, allspice and plenty of alcohol. And then opposite the end, uh, before you bring out um, the pudding, which is half melon or bundt cake in shape, uh, you pour a load of brandy on it and light it on fire. And that's, uh, you bring that in, cast, cast it in the air. It's a real uh, Christmas celebration, holding the pudding aloft and bringing it to the table. Okay, so we've got another fireside Christmas butler tale here. These are real life uh, Christmas time stories uh, that are rather spooky and rather eerie. The Christmas Visitor. I had an unusual visitor on Christmas Day 2008 and I'm pretty sure it wasn't Santa Claus passing by my house in Bloomington, Indiana, says the writer. The day started in a typical fashion with the opening of gifts around the Christmas tree. Served an early Christmas dinner for friends and family and everybody departed at 5pm except my sister and brother-in-law who lived with me at the time. They were asleep in a bedroom at the end of the hall but the door was open. I went into the bedroom with my dog Toby and shut the door, shut the door securely. Toby curled up at the foot of the bed to sleep like he always does. It was chilly, so I pulled the blankets and comforter up around my head 
and curled up to nap for an hour. I was dozing off when I heard the latch on my bedroom door open. I waited several seconds for my sister and brother-in-law to say whatever they came in to say, but there was no other sound. It was 7pm. So the bedroom was pitch back. I left lights on in the kitchen and the bathroom and there were lots of Christmas lights on in the living room. So the hallway would never have been, uh, would have been well lit and I'd been able to see whoever it was at the door just by lifting my head. I pushed the blankets down and lifted my head from the pillow. But just as I would be able to see the doorway, there was an extremely bright light hit me right in the face and I shielded my eyes. Turn out the light, you're blinding me. The light immediately disappeared and I heard the bedroom door latch close. My bedside light is a touch lamp, so I tapped it on and looked around the bedroom. There was nobody except me and Toby. Toby jumped off the bed and went to the door without showing signs of alarm. At first I wasn't frightened because Toby's a Dutch shepherd and was trained to be an excellent watchdog. Since Toby was already up, I decided to go and let him outside. And there was nobody there either. Ordinarily, I'm not a skittish person and the strange noises or lights wouldn't alarm me, but in this situation it was just too eerie and the light made my skin crawl. Let me add that the latch on my bedroom door is broken in such a way that the inside door handle must be jiggled for the latch to pop out and engage. It makes a very distinctive noise and sound that I'm used to listening to for because it doesn't latch, the door swings open. I'm absolutely positive that the door was latched closed when I got into bed, just as I'm certain it was the door latch I heard before the incident. When I left the bedroom, the door was latched closed again. I couldn't understand how my sister or brother-in-law could have come into my room and then returned to their own bed and crawled under the covers in a few seconds it took me to reach the hallway. But I figured it had to be one of them since Toby always barks and growls at everybody and anything he doesn't immediately recognise. When my brother-in-law got up to get ready for work that night, I asked him if he'd, what he had wanted earlier in the evening. When he opened the door, he looked puzzled and he said, I never got up and I certainly never opened your door. I slept soundly the whole time I was in bed. Okay, so, she, so I asked my sister, did you want anything early in the evening when you opened the door? She looked puzzled and told me I dozed off and on but never got out of bed and I never saw or heard anything in the hallway. She leaves the bedroom door open at all times and she faces the hallway so she can see if anybody's coming and going in the house. So who was my special Christmas visitor and how did they get in and out so quickly? Like most people, the thought of loved ones are always close at hand during the holiday season. When I first went to lie down, I was thinking how happy it was that my small family had enjoyed a pleasant Christmas, but it would have been so much better if my mother and brother had still been alive. I'd like to think that my brother's spirit stopping by saying, Merry Christmas, I still think of you. I've been able to debunk the strange event or find any kind of irrational uh, explanation over the years. I'm half afraid that my heart stopped during my sleep and the light I saw was the bright light people report after near-death experiences. Leave it to me to see the stairway to heaven and ruin my chance of eternal paradise by saying, turn out the light. I've made a mental note that if I ever see a bright light to actually clean up my language and don't curse, just in case. Once again, thank you very much for listening to the podcast. Uh, we're going to have another one tomorrow. Uh, we're going to have some of our regular features, much merriment and mirth. So at Keep Cheese on Twitter, uh, keep coming cauliflower cheese on Instagram. Uh, thank you very much for listening. We're getting a real uh, worldwide audience at the moment. So people listening all over the world, which is absolutely fantastic. And feel free to share any stories or any comments, or anything you would like to add about the podcast or any of the nonsense and frivolity contained within. So uh, thank you very much. Join me again tomorrow. Same place, same chappy. And uh, I look forward to seeing you then for this uh, wondrous 
holiday season that we have uh, ahead of us. Hopefully it'll add a little bit of joy and maybe a few Christmas chuckles along the way. Um, but we finish with uh, a rather nice little Christmas poem, A Friend Greeting by a Guest. I'd like to be the sort of friend that you have been to me. I'd like to be the help that you're always glad to be. I'd like to mean as much to you every minute of the day as you meant, old friend of mine, to me along the way. I'd like to do the big things and the splendid things for you, to brush the grey out of the skies and leave them only blue. I'd like to say the kindly things that I so oft have heard and feel that I could rouse your soul the way mine you've stirred. I'd like to give the joy back that you've given me, yet that you were wishing you need a hope will never be. I'd like to make you feel as rich as I, who travel on and daunted in the darkest hours, and you to learn upon. I'm wishing at this Christmas time that I could repay a portion of the gladness that you strewn along the way, and I could have only one wish this year, this only would be, I'd like the sort of friend that you have been to me. Au revoir, mon ami. I'll see you again tomorrow. Take care until then. Have a nice warming drink. And I'll talk to you again tomorrow.